Welcome to Calvary Chapel of Columbia, where we're unpacking God's truths one verse at a time. And now here's Pastor Tim with today's message. 18 this morning, Matthew chapter 18. We're continuing the study of the life and the ministry of Jesus in chronological order. And uh, today we find ourselves kind of in an interesting topic that uh, it was, I think it really hits home for people. I think they've been walking with Jesus for a while and how how we can become if we're not careful. And it's, it's really, well, stand with me and let's just read it and you can check it out. I don't have to say too much about it. Matthew chapter 18. We're going to read the first four verses today. At that time, the disciples came to Jesus saying, Who is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? And calling to him a child, he put him in the midst of them and said, Truly I say to you, unless you turn and become like children... You will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Whoever humbles himself like this child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. And Father, we thank you for this passage this morning. This true measure of greatness in your kingdom. Lord, I pray that you would speak to our hearts. You would help us to um, just be honest with ourselves this morning, Lord, as your spirit comes and speaks to us individually, that you would help us to be truthful and um, just to be teachable this morning, Lord. And uh, we ask that your spirit would come and lead us into all truth and just uh, meet us right where we are today, God, in Jesus' name. Amen. You can be seated. So a child came home after what he considered to be a pretty remarkable day. He He had won the school science fair. So he comes home and he finds out, Mom, where are you? I'm in the kitchen, honey. He comes in very confidently and he said, well, I won the science fair today. She goes, oh, honey, I'm so, that's so great. I'm so proud of you. Yeah. Him and hot around a few seconds and he said, you know, Mom, I wonder. Uh, He said, how many Truly great men do you think there are in the world today? She wisely responded, not as many as you think. Not as many as you think, because he thought that he was pretty wise. And that can happen to us if we're not careful. The title of my message today is, The True Measure of Greatness. For in the first four verses of Matthew chapter 18, what we find is Jesus giving us the true measure. It's not an earthly measure, but it's a heavenly measure. In the world, we measure greatness externally by what people accomplish, by the things that they do in their lives, not necessarily by who they become. It's it's totally opposite when it comes to heaven. It's not so much what you accomplish, it's really who you become. And that's what Jesus wants to speak to us about today. There have been many businessmen that have been incredibly successful externally built empires, become incredibly wealthy, and yet many times their families are in shambles. They can lead in the business world, but they're not leading in their homes. Something gave there. It was, they were more focused on what they could achieve rather than what they could become. And that's what Jesus wants to tell us today. He wants us to really look at ourselves and ask the question, who am I becoming? Not necessarily what am I achieving. When we look at things, greatness from an external standpoint and from a worldly perspective, it creates arrogance. It creates pride. It creates self-centeredness. And those are the very opposite things of what Jesus was speaking about as he was on this earth. And, And his disciples, unfortunately, were much like that little boy who came to his mom about the things that he had achieved. They were so proud of all the things that they had accomplished. And, and, and Jesus wants to speak into their lives today. They had presumed, interesting enough, that they, one amongst them was the greatest. They were, weren't asking the question in general. It wasn't a question like, we wonder if it's Moses or Abraham. No, no which one of us really is what they, they were asking. Which one of us, Jesus, is the greatest in heaven? It's very arrogant to ask kind of presumptuous to ask a question like that, you can see where they might have got the wrong idea. 
if they were looking at success or greatness from a worldly perspective, the things that God did in their lives. I mean, he used them in, in great ways. He, they healed the blind. They gave sight to the blind. They gave hearing to the deaf. They healed those who were sick. They cast out demons. They did incredible things externally. God used them mightily, and you could see how that would be easy to allow pride to come into your life. More, most recently, some of the events that had taken place, if you recall, if you've been with us for a few weeks, you remember that Jesus up in uh, Caesarea Philippi, not too uh, far before this, not too much um, before this, he actually took the three stooges, you know, Peter, James, and John, those three stooges, up to a mount of transfiguration. And it was there that Jesus was transformed into his heavenly body. Now, Jesus is God, so that must have been some incredible heavenly body. I mean, the brilliance of his body must have been blinding because God is light. Jesus transformed that day. Well, before those three, you could imagine how great they thought they were. Not only that, but they got to meet, they got to meet Elijah and Moses. Hey, there they are, Elijah and Moses. And not only that, but they got to hear the heavenly father give his son uh, honor before them. This is my son in whom I'm well pleased. As they came down the mountain, no doubt. Well, Peter, even in the midst of that um, situation, said, it's good that we're here, Lord. It's really good that we're here. You wouldn't want to leave the greats out. You know, we're the greats. We need, we're glad we're here, Lord. They came down the mountain, and they were... They came into a place where they, they had an, engaged with that demon-possessed man. Oh, failure there. They couldn't cast him out. Jesus explains to them why. They leave Caesarea Philippi, and Jesus is focusing on ministering to his disciples at this point. And last week, we talked about this, this incredible proclamation that Jesus made to his disciples. He told them that the sons are free. Peter, being asked about that two drachma tax, the temple tax, and and he says, of course, Jesus pays the tax. And then he comes in and Jesus says, hey, Peter, let me ask you a question. Is it the, is it the, 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 the sons that pay the tax or, or is it everyone else? Is, is it the other people? Is it strangers? Well, it's strangers, I guess. You know, in a kingdom, does the king tax his sons or does he tax other, everybody else? And he says, of course, he taxes everybody else. Same is true in the kingdom of heaven. You've been released from the tax of the law because I've come here to set you free. And he set, set us free through that. And, and he was declaring to the disciples there that they were sons of the kingdom. They were no longer uh, under that bondage of giving to the temple tax. They were free. They had been adopted into the household of God. What a glorious truth. And, and then what happened was Jesus did an incredible miracle. On Peter's behalf, remember, he told Peter, go to the lake and cast into that, cast into that lake a hook. Don't put anything on it. Just, it's just bare, probably. Throw it out there, and you're going to catch a fish, and it's going to have a coin in his mouth. And then go pay the tax so we're not offensive to them. We don't want to be offensive. We don't want to hinder the gospel from going forward in, in, this, um, in the world. So Peter goes and catches the money fish. And he takes that money, and he pays the tax. Now, what's crazy is that none of these guys, none of the disciples were, were, in a worldly sense, great at all. They were just normal people. They were blue-collar workers. They weren't astute, you know, religious men that were raised under the, you know, greatest leaders of the religious um, realm of that day. They, they, weren't, they were nobodies, really. And Jesus came to them, and he grabbed them, and he wanted to make them somebody. Not necessarily in this world, but somebody in another world. The kind of people that uh, Jesus had there in the disciples, you know, fishermen, tax collectors. He even had a zealot that wanted to rise up against Rome and take by force. He had all kinds of men from different walks of life. And yet what would make them great wasn't anything in them. It was only what God could put in them. That was what would make them great. What's interesting is, is um, after all the external things that they experienced as far as successful, casting out demons and such and healings and all those kind of things, they also 
experienced incredible failures. They also experienced incredible failures before each other and also before the Lord. You recall Peter, not too, um, not too, uh, whatever, I can't even think how to say that. Before this event, you know, not too far before that, he actually had gone. And, G- and Jesus said, you know, I'm going to die and I'm going to rise again from the dead. And Peter, no, nah, far be it from me, Lord, to let you do that. And, and G- he gets called Satan. That's a colossal failure. <laughs> if Jesus calls you Satan, that's not a good thing, you know. So, so Peter, he failed in that way. We see that James and John, what was their nickname? The sons of thunder. Who gave them that name? Jesus. Why did he give them that name? Well, because they wanted to call down fire from heaven on people. I mean, they wanted to express their fury in a very visible form. And Jesus says, no, no, it's not not the wrath I want you to, to express to the world. I want you to express my love. Oh, colossal failure. That's pretty big. Not only them, but you, we can't forget Andrew, who during the feeding of the 5,000, oh, he was, he was there and Jesus said, well, what do we have, guys? And Andrew brings him these two fish and these five loaves. And he says, boy, Jesus, this is all we have. I guess we'll have to turn the people away. No faith at all that Jesus could do anything with that. And yet he fed 5,000 people with those two fish and those five loaves. Every one of these disciples, the apostles, were all failures in some way, shape, or form amongst each other. Externally, I'm speaking. They externally failed before each other. Every one of these guys. It would appear by the text that they were um, becoming the very opposite of who Jesus was calling them to be. They were focusing more on their successes and, and allowing pride in those successes to cause them to swell up and, be, and think in their own minds that they were great. They were considering themselves a little bit too highly. These disciples were much like the little boy who stated in his mind that he was going to become the greatest baseball player ever. And so he goes out onto the field and he's going to take some batting practice. And so what he does is he, he's by himself. So he's going, to, he's going to take a ball and he's going to throw it up and he's going, to, he's going to strike the ball. So he gets himself set. He's got the ball at the back. And before he throws the ball up, he tells himself, I'm the greatest hitter in the world. And he throws it up, and he swings with all his might, and he misses. Okay. Well, everybody gets three strikes. So I'm not going to stop now. And his, so he gets himself set again. And he prepares to, to hit the ball, and he tells himself, I'm the greatest hitter in the world. And he throws the ball up, and he swings, and he misses again. Okay, every hitter in the history of baseball has been in this situation before. Two strikes down. Base is loaded. You're down by one point, by one run, and you're up to bat. So he thinks to himself, okay, this is where the greats come out. He sets himself up. He throws the ball up. He swings, and he misses. Strike three, you're out. The boy standing there thinking about what just had happened and the thing that he had just said, what he believed himself. And all of a sudden, a grin came upon his face, and he said, I'm the greatest pitcher in the world. I'm the greatest pitcher in the world. That's what the disciples were doing. That's exactly what the disciples were doing. Overlooking their failures and cheering and, uh, you know, allowing pride to take over in their successes. Listen, pride will lie to you. It will deceive you. It will cause you to focus on on the failures of everyone else, but never your own failures. It will cause you to exalt yourself and even rob the glory from God. If you're not careful, pride will sneak into your life. Pride was at work in the disciples here, so much so that they had the audacity to ask Jesus this incredibly prideful question, who is the greatest in heaven? Who is the greatest? I've divided these these four verses up into three sections as it relates to the greatest in the kingdom, the question of greatness, the entrance to greatness, and the attitude demonstrating greatness. First, we find the question of greatness here in verse 1. At that time, the disciples came to Jesus saying, who is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? It was at that time 
At the time after Jesus had just sent Peter away to go pay the tax and with that, with that fish and all, and maybe all the disciples came with him. And they were having um, a, a conversation. Mark and Luke, both Gospels, in chapter 9, hold the same account. But we have some different details there. We find that the disciples were traveling together. So perhaps they went with Peter, right, you know, to pay that tax. And as they were coming back, they were talking amongst themselves about, well, well actually, it says they were arguing about who was the greatest amongst them. Mark chapter 9, verse 34 Verse 33 and 34 says, And they came to Capernaum, and when he was in the house, he asked them, What were you discussing on the way? But they kept silent, for on the way they had argued with one another about who was the greatest. They were actually arguing over amongst themselves who would be the greatest disciple. Can you imagine that conversation? You ever had that conversation before? I hope you haven't. I hope not. If you have then you can totally relate to what's being said here. Maybe we've never had the verbal conversation, but sometimes we, maybe we've had it in our own minds. I can't even fathom what was being said here. Maybe John was saying, oh, Lord, I bet Jesus probably thinks I'm the greatest because he loves me the most. We all know that. We all know that. And Peter steps aside and he says, hey, hey John, when you can walk on water, we'll talk, huh? And Andrew pops out and he says, hey, oh, hey, Peter, uh, I remember you sunk, you big oaf. And then somebody else pops in and talks about their greatness. And they have all this chaos thing. You've had one of those conversations in some context. And it can get pretty out of hand and it can get pretty heated and emotional very quickly because people aren't seeing it my way. What's that? Pride. People aren't seeing it my way. Who is the greatest basketball player in the world? Guys, you ever been in one of those conversations? But there's no right answer. It's all opinion-based, and you can look at stats and all this kind of stuff. Oh, I think Larry Bird was the greatest basketball player in the world. Oh, hands down, Michael Jordan. Are you kidding me? LeBron's James. You know, he's the greatest, whatever. And you have this conversation, and it starts to become an argument. Now, can imagine if you're talking about yourself. Hey, this is somebody you, you don't really even, you don't know. You don't care about that much, but, but you care about yourself a lot more. And so when you have that conversation about yourself, things get real, real quick. What'd you just say? Walk on water. <laughs> you, you sank, Peter, and you begin to insult each other. Oh, now what's happening? Division. Pride. Division. The enemy. He loves that. He loves when the church is divided, and he uses pride to do that. They were arguing over something incredibly stupid, over something very arrogant and self-centered. Oh, I think I'm probably the greatest. The body of Christ is doing that in a different way today, over many, many contexts. I see it happen over secondary doctrine all the time. It's not salvation issue, and yet those people can't even be Christians because they believe this, because they don't see it my way. I can't believe they believe in this or that or whatever, whether it be the gift of tongues or whatever, how the semantics of salvation or whatever. They're not even Christians. Whoa. Wait, wait a second here. Did that really just happen? It's happening. And it continues to happen. You know what's in the middle of that? Pride. Pride. Listen, we want to be pure in doctrine, but not so pure that we become impure. You know what I'm saying? We want to be pure in our doctrine, particularly when it comes to Jesus Christ and Him crucified. There's no compromising. It's only Him. He's the only way to salvation. There is no other things you can add to that to make salvation. Jesus Christ by himself hung on a cross, put in a tomb, and risen again from the third day. That's it. And I'll divide over that all day long. But when it comes to secondary things in the church body, when it comes to us trying to elevate our position a little bit higher than somebody else's, that's pride. And we have to be incredibly careful how we do that. Man, I, I can't believe just living in this area many times I've heard 
these kind of things come out. Pride, big time. I was at a dinner one time at a, uh, um, uh, where a bunch of pastors got together, my wife and I, and I was talking to, the, to this uh, uh, a denominational pastor. And there are multiple fractions of this denomination in and of itself, so you don't know where the guy lies because they're doctrinally, they're way different. But he, but he said to me, well, I said, hey, what, what church are you from? Oh, I'm from this church, and I'm, I'm the, uh, the only denomination, by the way. We're the only ones. Really? Why? Oh, because we believe this and that and whatever. Whoa. Boy, did I see some peacock feathers come out. I was like, whoa. Remember that? I was like, whoa, what the? Hey, see you later, man. Go find somebody else to talk to. I don't want to get, that guy's going to um, get me into a, a foolish dispute that I don't want to get into. So I'm going to turn away from that, thanks. I don't want to have a conversation with that guy because I had a conversation with him, but I'm just saying. <laughs> I'm just saying, man. But my peacock feathers didn't come up because I, I, I was obviously so focused on his, I couldn't see my own. So, <laughs> But, uh, you know, here's the thing is it's happening. And I think we would do well to um, consider what comes out of our mouths regarding that. When it comes to doctrinal stuff, man, you know, Jesus Christ and him crucified, no question. I'll divide on that. But, but anything beyond that, have some grace. And, and I think it's great to have the conversations because as iron sharpens iron, so does one man to another. But let them be edifying. Don't, when, you, when, when it turns the corner and you know it's turned the corner, stop talking. Because sin is right there. It's lurking around the corner and it's waiting. And pride's going to well up. And the next thing you know, you're going to say something you didn't wish you said. And you might even end up in a fist fight. Who knows? Christians do that kind of stuff, you know? Be careful. Don't allow pride to well up and divide you. That's what was happening with the disciples, man. They were dividing as a result of pride in their own hearts. Who is the greatest? pardon my frankness, but they were having a peeing contest and they wanted Jesus to be the judge. Hey, Jesus, come over. What do you think? Who won? What? What are you guys talking about? Who's the greatest? Who is the great? Now, I would have went temple on these guys. If I was Jesus, I would have just started flipping tables over, winding up some ropes. I would have started whipping them. I would have said, you want to know who's greatest? <laughs> Me. That's who's greatest. Oh, the flesh would come out real quick. Jesus, it tells us, he calls his disciples to himself. Guys, come here. What? What are you talking about? Was that, that's what you guys were talking about? You were arguing about? Like Jesus needed them to fill him in. He didn't need them to fill him in. In fact, Luke's gospel says he knew already what they were talking about, what they were disputing over, what they were arguing about. Jesus says something in Mark chapter um, 9, verse 35, that really, probably really hit them right in the heart. He said, he sat down, called the 12, and he said to them, if anyone would be first, he must be last of all, and, or he must be last of all and servant of all. You guys aren't doing that at all. The way it looks to me is none of you guys are going to be the greatest in heaven. In fact, you're probably going to be the least. The way it sits right now, the way you're acting. Jesus tells us here that the answer to their question lies within the heart. It's a matter of motive, not movement. It's, an, it's, not a, measure of in, uh, it's a measure of internal, not external. What Jesus is saying here is that the true measure of greatness is determined by the motive of the heart. Why you're doing what you're doing, that matters to God. Not what you achieve, but how you achieve it. That's what he cares about. I love one of my commentaries said this. It said, being a servant is not a matter of position, but of attitude. Freely attending to others' needs without expecting or demanding anything in return. Oh, you mean... It's not reciprocal, so I just have to serve with no thank you, with no expectation of any kind of return. Is that what he's saying? Yeah. 
That's exactly what he's saying. With no expectation of, of, of a thank you. You ever let somebody in when you're cruising down the road and you can see they're trying to get in and you're being nice and you let them in and you, what do you expect? What? You know, <laughs> what do you expect? You want them to wave at you. You want them to say, hey, thanks, man. Hey, way to go. You're awesome, man. Woohoo! That's what you want. But no, they didn't do it. Now you're ticked off. <laughs> you know, you're trying to swerve in front of them. That's the flesh. You have to, Jesus was talking about being a servant. Listen, the, the greatest leaders placed their needs last. The greatest leaders place their needs last. They're not worried about themselves. They're worried about everybody else first. You know, the org chart on a, on, on a, on a heavenly leader is upside down. You know that, right? The greatest leader's on the bottom, and he, he, he's serving everybody else. It's the cone. That's what Jesus did for us. He came from heaven, stepped into this world and said, man, I'm going to be servant of all. I'm going to serve people with no expectation. I'm going to love them unconditionally. And I'm going to lay down my life for them. Being a servant is a life of self-denial, of loving your neighbor as yourself. Considering someone's interest above your own. That's what being a servant is. Jesus is telling these guys, you want to be great? Become a little bit less selfish and become a little bit more self, uh, selfless. That's how you become great. The disciples in this moment were incredibly self-centered. They were self-seeking and Jesus was pointing that out. I can only imagine the indictment there. Jesus were to say that to you or me. I would say that in our day and age, that same mentality is happening. Self-centeredness. You know, not, not serving people with the heart that Jesus calls us to serve. Did you notice that it said servant of, of all? Well, does that seem selective to you? Because when I serve people, I'm kind of selective about who I serve. I don't know if you are, but I'm kind of selective about that because some people take me a little too far. They use me, and they will, you know, tread on the grace that God has given me. So I have to be very choosing of, of who I'm going to serve. That's not what Jesus said. He said, be servant of all. Be servant of all. There's many, many people out in this world today that need serving. The question is, will you serve them? Will you serve them? There's a community right now that is rejoicing over this whole gay marriage thing. Will you be a servant to them? Not in the sense of serving them and supporting them, and, 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 but I'm talking about serving them for the sake of the gospel. I'm talking about setting aside all that your own rights and your own um, anger and, and all the, you know, the, as wrong as that is, and we don't support whatsoever, that movement at all, but we love those people. And Jesus said, man, you want to become great? You, you serve those kind of people. What was Jesus known for? What was he known for by the disciples, or by the, by the religious leaders? For serving those kind of people. For see, serving the least in those. The, those people that everybody else cast aside and said, man, I don't want anything to do with those people. Jesus went in and he served them. And he ministered to them. And that's what we need to do. We have to be very careful right now in this very, very important historical moment in our country that we don't allow our flesh to rise up and our pride to well up and we start to fight the wrong battle. Because the battle is not flesh and blood. You realize that. The battle does, is not in legislation in Washington, D.C. The battle is spiritual. The battle is spiritual, and if we're going to fight that battle, then we need to do it correctly, and we need to fight it spiritually, not flesh and blood, not through legislation, not through trying to, you know, force what we believe on other people. What we need to do is we need to get on our knees. We need to suit up in the armor of God. Isn't that what Paul tells us in 
Ephesians chapter 6, 12, that like, hey, you're, you're in a spiritual war, so put on your spiritual suit. Get the, war, get the armor of God on and prepare yourselves for battle. Listen, rather than, be, rather than voice your opinions on Facebook, how about, how about, and I'm not saying anybody's doing that, I'm just saying I see it with Christians. And I'm, not, I'm talking supporting and hating. Rather than that, how about, how about the church falls on their face and we begin to pray that God will move in a unique way in this environment here and that we can take ground from the enemy? How about we do that? How about we step forward into our prayer closets and we do some serious business before the Lord? You want to make a dent in what's happening in our community? Get on your knees. That's what the Bible tells us. Pray. 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 Listen. It's a spiritual battle. You're never going to force righteousness on people. The wrath of man cannot produce the righteousness of God. That's what the Word says. So how do I respond to evilness in the world then? Man, I say that you pray and you ask God to move. And then you take those steps that he tells you to take. And every one of our steps are going to be different. God is going to give you opportunities. Every one of you will in different ways. So it's not a, not a cookie cutter. Here you go. Here's the model for the church for the day and the age that we live in. Here you go. Now go out and do it. Just, just do what God tells you to do. But you've got to seek him to do that, right? You've got to get on your face. You've got to ask him. And then you have to ask him to go before you. So do that. Listen, I don't pretend to know how that all works in the realm of God's sovereignty in our prayers. But I know that the Bible instructs us, commands us, pray. Paul says pray without ceasing. Why? Because, it's, because it works. That's why. Because it matters. Because God, God he, he does stuff through prayer. He works. When we, when we call upon his name, he shows up. That's what we need to do right now as a church. And I know Greg Glory last week in, one of the, in his message to his church said, we're starting an initiative based on Ephesians chapter 3, verses 20 and 21. The idea of God doing exceedingly abundantly more and resting on that promise and claiming that promise and, and committing to pray every day this month. Every day this month, specifically about this country and about this issue. And I would tell you to do the same. I would challenge you to do the same. I would ask that you, we join the ranks of the, the church and we begin to pray about this stuff that's going on in our country rather than just voice our opinions and get frustrated because that, what does that accomplish? Nothing. 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 You want a real voice? Go to the one that can give you one. He can give you a real voice. I'm calling you guys to pray too. I was called to pray myself. Let's pray. Every day this month, every day, you pray about what's going on in this world and you ask God to move and you ask him to, to, to fill your heart with the kind of love that he has. And Lord, we know it's wrong and we know when we stand against it's wrong and you know, you did. You wa he walked on this earth and, and there were people he encountered that were totally living incorrect lives and totally doctrinally incorrect and all this stuff and Jesus, he ministered to them. He loved them. Not, not everyone. But he was known for doing that. And I would say be known for doing that. Ask God to do that work. Don't become selfish. Become selfless. Go before. Ask the Lord to move. The disciples forgot what Jesus taught them. They had already forgotten what he had taught them about, uh, about servanthood. He was modeling it for them. It wasn't like they didn't see it every day. It's not like they didn't watch Jesus you know, pick up trash on the ground. He's just walling around, just picking up stuff. Oh, this is my father's uh, property. I'm going to pick it up because, well, Jesus, why are you doing that? Because I'm a servant, man, and I love my Lord. I love my father, and I'm going to do it for him. How can he love his Lord when he is Lord? That doesn't even make sense. But he loves his father. And I would say the same for you, man. Love him and serve him. These guys forgot that. They, they didn't know what they were doing. They, they, they started focusing on themselves. So Jesus takes the opportunity to remind them about some important um, teachings. First and foremost, how you come into the kingdom of God. Don't forget about how you came to be a Christian. 
That's the first thing he tells them. After he tells them, hey, you know, he gathers them around, you need to be servant of all. Oh, by the way, let me remind you really quickly how you came into relationship with me. Can I do that? He says in verse 2, and calling to him a child, he put him in the midst of them and said, truly I say to you, unless you return, unless you turn and become like children, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Now, this is an incredible illustration. I mean, Jesus, he's obviously the master illustrator, but there is an incredible illustration found in what he did here. He called the child to himself after they proposed this question about being the greatest, and he, he illustrates how a person gains heaven, how they, how they even get into heaven first. You want to be great in heaven, let's talk about how you get into it first. Um, he declares to them, truly, unless you become, unless you turn and become like children, you will never enter the kingdom of God. You have to become like a child, he says. Well, what's a child like? Well, it's illustrated here for us. In, in, the, in the calling of this little one, Jesus sits in the midst of them. By calling this child to himself, Jesus first uh, declaring the first step in the process of coming into heaven. Before anyone can enter into greatness, they have to be called. You have to be called into relationship with the Father. It's not you taking the first step. It's not you seeking him out first. The Bible tells us no one seeks him. No one. Why do we seek him? Because he draws us. That's why. The Bible tells us that we have to be called to come into that relationship with him. Jesus illustrated that so greatly by calling that child. He called out to him. Just like John chapter 6 verse 44 tells us, no one can come to me unless the father who uh, sent me draws him. That's straight up Bible. God has to draw us to himself. The Father must call to us. That's step one. Step two, not only must God call us or draw us, but then we must be willing to come. That child had an opportunity to say, yeah, no, I'm not coming. Hey, come here. No, no, I'm not going to do that. No, he came. That's the second part of it. You have to respond to that drawing. You have to, you have to come to him. That's what the Bible tells us. Jesus speaking in Matthew chapter 23, verses 37. He said, over Jerusalem, he's weeping. He's saying, oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the city that kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to it. How often I would have gathered your children together as a hen gathers her broad under, brood under her wings, and you were not willing. They weren't willing to come to him. It's not that he wasn't calling. They weren't willing to come. Man has responsibility in this factor. There's a responsibility for us to respond to God. God's calling. We have to respond to him. And, and thirdly, not only that, but then we have to believe in him. Many people, many people are drawn and many people come, but not so many believe. Not so many believe in him. John chapter 3 verses 14 and 15 and as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness so must the son of man be lifted up that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. You have to, you have to believe. But did you, did you hear what it said? Jesus must be lifted up. He had to be given so that we could be forgiven. He had to come and die on the cross so that we could live in heaven forever. He must do those things and we must believe. It's not enough to come to church. It's not enough to, 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 to hear the call of God. I know I should go to church. I know I should, you know, that, listen, when people say that kind of stuff, do you know what they're really saying? God's drawing me. I know I should. There's a conviction in my heart. I, I feel burdened that I should do that and so I'm coming. Uh, that's why I'm coming is because I'm being drawn and yet I come. But they don't go to the, the third step and they don't believe. They don't receive that gift. It's through faith. that A child operates in all these things, no problem. They're so simple. It's a no-brainer to a kid. But, but the older we get, the more complicated that process becomes. And the more steps we put in the way, and we try and, we try and well, make it our own way. 
We try and, we try and sort of cater salvation to, we make our own path. Oh, I think it's like this. Well, no, I think I do it this way. There's only one way, and it's real simple. He draws, you come, and you believe. That's, that's what he's telling them. Did you notice what he said here? Unless you turn. Wait, that's personal. Unless you turn. Well, who's he talking to? He's, he's talking to his disciples. Unless you turn and become like children, you'll never enter the kingdom of God. Listen, there was one at least in that crowd that wasn't believing. Oh, he, he, he had responded. He had come, but he wasn't believing. His name was Judas. I believe Jesus all along reaching out, speaking into his life. But you got to believe, man. But you got to believe. Even to the very last moment where he comes and betrays him and, and he betrays him with a kiss like a friend. Oh, Jesus kisses him. And Jesus says, friend, why have you come? In those moments, probably with a grin on his face. He already told him earlier that night that someone was going to betray him. Here's the moment. Friend, why have you come? Are you sure you want to do this, Judas? That's, that's how I believe God loves us. To the end. Are you sure that you want to make that decision? Are you sure? Reaching out to us. He tells the disciples, listen, if you want to enter into greatness, you have to become like a child. Children are simple, they're dependent, they're helpless, they're unambitious, they're full of faith. A children doesn't need to see to believe, they believe the unbelievable. Isn't it fun to mess around with kids? You're like, yeah, I was an astronaut, and I went to the moon yesterday, and it was crazy, the stuff that I saw, and they're like, really? That's kids. That's how they are. Wow, you think you could take me with you next time? I don't know. I'll call the commander and see. And you, it's, so, it's awesome because they believe. They have faith. I don't need to see it because you know why? They trust you. It's kind of wrong to do that, but I have fun with it. I don't know. But, but, but the point is there. We can trust the word of our Lord. And he says, if you don't become like a child, man, you're never going to make it. Lastly, he tells us the attitude that we must demonstrate, that demonstrates greatness here in verse 4. Whoever humbles himself like this child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. Jesus said the key to being great in heaven is to maintain an attitude of humility, just like this child. Uh, this child Jesus was using to illustrate at this moment was sitting there. I imagine grin on his face, almost in awe that he's there. He called me. He loves me. Not mocking to his friends. You know, he's not doing that. He's sitting on the lap of Jesus, just blown away, in awe that he was called. Oh, Lord, I don't deserve this. I can't believe that you chose me, that I get to be the one. You lose that a little bit in your relationship with the Lord? Does it turn around? And do you become more like, Lord, you're so lucky that you have me. God, you're so lucky that I'm on your team. I don't know what you would do without me. No, I hope that's not you. Jesus says that we need to be humble, like a little child would be. So oftentimes when God begins to use a sinner, which we all are, we quickly forget who we are. We quickly forget who, who God made us and why we are what we are today. Paul says it like this, it's by the grace of God that I am what I am. It's not me. It's the Lord. Pride will deceive you into thinking that you're pretty great. Man, I don't know. I don't really do things that other Christians do. I pretty much, I think I've arrived. Oh my goodness, I am so good. No, you're not. That's pride. Humility, on the other hand, is, it keeps you sincere, independent, and usable. 
by the Lord. The Bible tells us this about humility. It says, humility comes before honor. You want to be great? You've got to be humble. Proverbs 15.33, the fear of the Lord is the instruction in wisdom, and humility comes before honor. Proverbs 18.12, before destruction, a man's heart is haughty, but pride comes before honor. Proverbs 22.4, the reward for humility and fear of the Lord is riches and honor in life. God honors those who remain humble before him. You want to be great in heaven? Remain in an attitude of humility. And God will honor you, and I believe both on this earth and in heaven. We see that in, in uh, the Sermon on the Mount, where Jesus said, Matthew chapter 5, verse 3, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Well, what's, what's somebody poor in spirit like? Pretty humble. Pretty humble. You realize you got nothing to offer him. Like, you're bankrupt spiritually. That's a pretty humbling position to be in. And he says, what, is, what do you have when, you're, when you come in that kind of humility? The kingdom of heaven. But he goes on in verse 5 of Matthew chapter 5. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit what? The earth. God is saying there's, for those who remain humble in the Christian walk, that they're going to both inherit the earth and the kingdom of heaven. That there's incredible blessings for us as we just remain in that humble state and allow him to use us. Because the moment we start to, be, we start to think highly, more highly of ourselves than we ought to, is the moment God has to say, man, I can't use you anymore. I can't use you anymore. I can't use you. We, we learn that from the words of James. James chapter 4, verse 10. Humble yourself before the Lord and he will exalt you. It's in your humility that he will exalt you. The true measure of greatness is not found in what you accomplish, but who you become. So who are you today? Christian, who are you becoming? You know what a good litmus test is, right? How you treat other people. That tells you real quick where you're at with the Lord, how humble you are, how, how prideful you really are. And I can tell you right now, man, God's got a lot of work to do in me. We have to be servant of all. We have to remain humble. And, you know, when people, as they, as they engage in you, man, you have to pray that God will give you the grace to deal with the stuff because people aren't nice sometimes but you know what we have to respond in a godly way do you have genuine love for people do you care about their hardships do you serve them like Jesus would serve them in humility and sacrifice Jesus said if you want to become the greatest you must become the least not in stature but in heart again I end with Paul's words in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verses 9 through 10. For I am the least of the apostles, unworthy to be called an apostle, because I persecuted the church of God. Here's a guy that never forgot who he was before he came to Christ. I think he died in that humility, thinking, man, I'm just lucky to be here. I persecuted the church. Jesus knocked me off my high horse. It was pride that caused me to persecute the church and man no longer am I that same man in fact Paul would tell us the, 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 the longer he walked with the Lord he would end up telling us towards the end of his life man I'm the chief of all sinners man I'm, I'm the chief and that's not a false humility I mean we, we, we people say that kind of stuff I'm the humblest person I know no you're not because that statement is prideful that is a prideful statement Paul said, I'm the least of the apostles, not in a fake humility, unworthy to be called an apostle because I persecuted the church, but by the grace of God, I am what I am, and his grace toward me was not in vain. His grace towards you is not in vain. Remain humble and allow that grace to flow through you. Amen? Let's pray. Father, we thank you so much for today and just for the the word that you have for us regarding humility, Father, and how we have to become like children, Lord, and remain like children to be great in your kingdom. I pray for all the saints in this place today, God, that you would help us to see where we're at in regards to humility, where we need to change, what are the things that 
we need to allow you to, to chip off our shoulders, Lord. God, we don't want to be prideful people because we know what pride produces. It produces the very opposite of what you taught us. Lord, today I pray for humility for each, and each of my brothers and sisters in this place. A sincere humility, Lord, that just can't help but being humble because we're so overwhelmed by what you've done for us. So overwhelmed that you would call each one of us to sit upon your lap, to be part of your kingdom. I pray, Lord, as we continue to do our business before you through this, um, right before communion, that you would prepare our hearts. If there is any pride in our hearts, Lord, if there are things that are convicting our hearts even right now, that we would just make those right with you. That as Jesus even said, that we have to turn that you would help us to turn, to repent of those things this morning and to turn to you. And God, we ask that you would just move in our midst even now, Father. If there's any, any that are here today that have been drawn and been called and yet they've not yet believed, would you just help them to, to see that, again, like a child, it's a simple Thing. It's just to, to truly receive what you did on the cross for us, personally. Your word tells us that if we confess with our mouths that Jesus is Lord and believe in our hearts that God raised him from the dead, we'll be saved. And if there's anyone here today that needs that relationship with the Lord, they would just simply cry out to you, Father, I need relationship with you. And I'm turning away from my old life, and I'm asking you to give me a new life. I'm believing by faith. Today, I'm receiving your son by faith, that he came, that he died, and that he rose again on the third day. And I pray that you would just come into my life now. And I thank you for this relationship. And it's a simple prayer like that, Father, that helps us to realize that really we're no different. There's not anyone in this room that doesn't need to say that, those words. And once we've said those words, there's not anyone in this room that needs to um, move away from those words. Lord, we are so humbled. We pray that we would be reminded of the great sacrifice you gave us through communion now and that you would just move in our midst, draw those, heal those, convict those, Lord. Just help us to repent today and just to be made right in Jesus' name. Amen. Hey. Thanks for listening. You can hear more of Pastor Tim's studies through the Word of God on our website, www.calvaryofcolumbia.org. Thanks again for listening, and we hope you'll join us again as we continue to study God's Word.